Well, hey, we're in week eight of our series on the Gospel of Mark. And uh, if you're following along in your reading guide, which is still available at the connection point, if you're following along in your reading guide, uh, chapter 8 is where things start to shift a little bit. Jesus starts to really let the disciples know who he is. Chapter 8 is very important to Mark communicating with us uh, Jesus' process in letting us know who he was. So in chapter 8, we see this moment where Jesus asks the disciples, so who do you think I am? And Peter says, you are the Messiah. You are the Christ. And we also have this moment where Jesus tells his disciples that he's going to die. He says, guys, I'm going to be put to death and I'm going to come, I'm going to come back. I'm going to be resurrected after three days. This is the first time that he tells his disciples this. So Mark 8 is a very important uh, piece of this gospel. But in verses 34 through 38, Jesus makes a very clear statement to us about who we are supposed to be as his followers. And we see him in a teaching moment with a crowd. It says, then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples. And he said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. So as we jump into this, we can see that the very first thing that Jesus does is he talks to this crowd and he completely opens up the invitation to become his follower. Jesus says to the crowd, whoever wants to be my disciple... He's making it clear to us that being called a disciple isn't reserved only for the group of 12 guys that's following him around. Jesus is opening up the invitation and saying that anyone can be Jesus' disciples. He says, I want to invite you to become my follower, to become my disciple. He, he's telling us that there's no conditions on his love for us. There's no conditions on his acceptance of us. But as we see in the rest of this passage, there are some conditions on being a follower of Jesus. Jesus lays these out, and it's interesting because you have to imagine the crowds there and the disciples were probably closer to Jesus. And what Jesus lines out here as, um, as kind of conditions to become his disciple, it applies to the crowd, but it also applies to the disciples. So many of us here are here today at different points in our spiritual journeys. Maybe you're here and you've been a Christian your whole life and you read your Bible every day. This stuff that Jesus says, it applies to you. These conditions apply to you. Maybe your parents are Christians and you grew up in a Christian home. Jesus requires something of you. Not just of your parents, but of you. And maybe you're here today and you're not a Christian. Maybe this is your first time you've ever been to church in your life. And this is a really good day to come because this is the day that Jesus gives us very specific instructions on how to become a Christian. So Jesus starts off by saying, whoever wants to be my disciple, anybody can become my disciple if they first deny themselves. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves. So the first instruction Jesus gives us is that if we want to be a follower of Jesus, if we want to be a Christian, we have to learn how to deny ourselves. Now, if you're here and you're not a Christian, I have good news and I have bad news. The good news is that even us Christians have a hard time denying ourselves, okay? It's not just you. The bad news is that 
even us Christians have trouble denying ourselves. It's not just you. We live in a world where we are trained to want what we want when we want it. Okay, I'm a big fan of Amazon. I hate shopping. I hate going to the mall. I, like, going to La Défense, Les Quatre Temps, or to, like, the Châtelet Mall is the worst date for me. Okay, I hate it. So I'm so lucky that I have this little device where I can buy anything I want off of Amazon. If I'm here and someone tells me about this cool kitchen gadget they got and I want it, I can go, oh, that's cool. Is this it? Yeah? Okay. Bought it. It'll be at my place on Tuesday. You know, I can get whatever I want right when I want it. It's in the palm of my hand. And this, I mean, we had a hard time denying ourselves before this, but it's becoming increasingly difficult for us to deny ourselves. This is, a, this is a fact that ruins people's lives. People ruin their lives because they don't know how to deny themselves. I've seen marriages ruined because people don't know how to say no and deny themselves. People ruin their finances because they don't know how to deny themselves. They don't know how to say no to themselves. People destroy their physical health because they don't know how to deny themselves. We're people who don't do discomfort well. We're not good at saying no to ourselves. Um, I have a friend who's a pastor, and I attended his church a few years ago, and he said this line that I've remembered ever since. He said, you should tell yourself no at least once a day. He said that. I don't even know if he would remember that he said that. But he said that, and, uh, and it's, it's really stuck with me. And I put that into practice in my life. Sometimes if there's something that I want, and I know I shouldn't have it, I'm like, uh, Ron Crumb said I should tell myself no at least once a day. And I really do this. Sometimes I'm in the grocery store and I'm like being really good and buying myself frozen cauliflower. But right next to the frozen cauliflower are the pints of haagen you know? And I just sometimes I look at that and I'm like, I deserve a reward. I'm working really hard. And then I say, oh, Ron Crumb told me you should tell yourself no at least once every day. So no, you may not have that. It's like talking to a child sometimes when we deny ourselves. You should tell yourself no at least once a day. We have to be willing to say no to ourselves in order to be able to say yes to what God wants for us. The truth is, in order to be a Christian, you're going to have to stop doing some things that you want to do. You're going to have to say no to yourself. And you're going to have to start doing some things that maybe you haven't done in the past. These things don't come naturally to us, okay? It's not easy for any of us. My stepmother is a very, very disciplined woman, okay? Listen, my family, my, like, blood family, we love sugar, okay? I was, like, born half sugar, like, half blood, half sugar. We love sugar. We eat so much sugar. And I go home, you know, and my dad's like, oh, your stepmom buys one bag of chocolate-covered almonds, and she eats one a day. And I'm like, the bowl is like sitting there on the counter and I'm like, if I eat all of them, she's going to know because she eats one chocolate almond a day, you know, and she's gotten really good at denying herself some things because her physical health is very important to her. But she has, she gets really frustrated because a lot of people will say to her, oh, you're just so thin. You just don't have to worry about it. But I see her come home from the gym after two hours of work every single day. She denies herself constantly because there's something else that's more important to her, but it still doesn't come naturally to her. Denying yourself and living a life of discipline doesn't come naturally to us. 
And I want to be clear that this is not about earning your salvation through your behavior. This isn't just about denying yourself for the sake of earning points with God. Last week, we talked about the Pharisees who were rule followers, and they got frustrated when the disciples didn't follow the same rules. But the truth is that the Pharisees followed the letter of the law because they hadn't had a revelation of Christ. The disciples sometimes violated the law, but they did this out of selflessness and in obedience to God. We have to figure out the difference in our lives. But ultimately, we have to be willing to shift the center of gravity from self to total obedience to God's will. This is very difficult for us to do because we, we are primarily concerned with ourselves as humans. But Jesus is saying you have to learn to deny yourself. You have to learn to crucify your flesh and allow your spirit to be in charge of your flesh. Jesus knew what he wanted us to know, which is that self-gratification, really it pays limited dividends. When you don't deny yourself, and when you say yes to everything your flesh wants, that pays limited dividends in your life, and usually things don't turn out great when you can't say no to yourself. But Jesus takes this one step further, and he says you can't just deny yourself, you have to then take up your cross. Denying ourselves, it starts in our head, it starts in our heart. And uh, a lot of times denying ourselves happens totally internally. And no one else even necessarily knows whether we're saying yes to ourselves or no to ourselves and denying ourselves. But taking up our cross implies that we're taking action. Now this was before Jesus was crucified. So when Jesus said, take up your cross, the crowd wouldn't have been thinking like, oh yes, take up your cross as Jesus did when he died on the cross. Jesus hadn't died on the cross yet, so they wouldn't have made that connection. But the cross was a common form of Roman execution. So they would have known the cross as a form of execution. So what Jesus is saying, Jesus is saying, we have to live like those who are on death row. We have to live like we're on our way to be executed. We have to live at that point of being willing to give everything up. Jesus says, if you want to be a follower of Jesus, you have to prepare your selfishness for execution. You have to prepare your desires for execution and be willing to give everything up for what God is asking of you. Now, Jesus was using a metaphor here. He didn't mean find a cross and carry it around. Um, he didn't mean buy a cross necklace. There's nothing wrong with cross necklaces, but that's not what he meant. Um, he was using a metaphor, and this metaphor has a few different elements. First of all, taking up your cross means that you have made a decision. I was not a Christian, and now I am a Christian, and I've made a choice to carry this cross. I'm not turning back. The second thing this metaphor implies is that it's a public decision. The people around you are going to see you carrying your cross. They're go it's going to be evident to people. You shouldn't be embarrassed to say that you're a Christian and to live as a Christian. Actually, this is one of the functions of water baptism, is that when you're baptized in water, you're making a public profession of your faith. You stand up in front of your friends and your family, and you say, from this point on, I am dead to my old nature, and I am alive in Christ. That's what water baptism is. It's a public profession. It's evident to everyone around me that I am a Christian. And the third thing it means to take up your cross, it means I am in complete submission to the will of God no matter what happens to me. In Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul talks about suffering. And he talks about the value of suffering. He says, For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. 
The spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. So what that means is that when you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit dwells inside of you. And the Holy Spirit reminds you that you are God's child. God has not purchased you as a slave. God has adopted you as his son or his daughter. And he tells us in verse 16, the Spirit himself, the Holy Spirit, testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. So the Holy Spirit inside of us is there to remind us, you are not a slave, you are a child. You are not God's slave, you are his child and he loves you. Verse 17 says, now if we are children, if we are God's children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. That means that everything that God has, I get access to because I'm his kid. I'm, I'm his heir. That means that all of his power, all, all of his might, all of his victory is mine because I'm his kid. I'm the heir. And it says, actually, it says we are co-heirs with Christ. That means that Jesus is also my brother and we're co-heirs together. We get to access all the power that God has. If we are children of God, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. We're invited to share in the sufferings of Christ. Now in the Western world, we don't do suffering really well. Um, when it hits about July in Paris, you'll learn that I don't do suffering very well. I miss air conditioning. I miss the luxuries sometimes of home. We don't do suffering well. But for the audience that Mark wrote this book for, actually suffering meant giving up their lives for the cause of Christ. See, Mark wrote this gospel uh, primarily to communicate with Christians in Rome the story of Jesus. There were people who were being killed for their faith. And Mark talks about taking up your cross, engaging in suffering for the cause of Christ. The truth is that, like Paul writes in, in, uh, like Paul writes in the book of Philippians, I want to know Christ. I want to know Christ. I want to know him in the power of his resurrection, and I want to participate in his sufferings. You can't know Christ if you never suffer. Okay, that's the truth. I've had a pretty good life, but I've hit some bumps in the road. I've walked through some seasons of, of suffering. I've walked through some seasons of grief, and I can tell you that I came to know Jesus better in my seasons of suffering than I did in my, in my seasons where everything was easy for me. I can tell you that. And if you've been through seasons of suffering, you'd probably agree with me. When you walk through seasons of suffering, you come to know Jesus on a level that you couldn't have without walking through the fire. If we're going to know Jesus, we need to share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Taking up my cross means that I'm in this no matter what. And it means that if I suffer, there's good to come out of it because then I get to know Jesus better than I knew him before. So Jesus says, if you want to be a follower, you have to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. In saying following me, Jesus is indicating that we're making a commitment toward the future throughout any unexpected thing that might come our way. Uh, last summer, I got to officiate my first ever wedding, and it was so much fun. And uh, in one of the preparation meetings, as we were talking through things, um, I was really struck by the fact that this couple was committing their lives to one another before they knew what the future would hold for them. Like, it's one thing if you're like 85 and you decide to get married then. It seems like a good idea to me. You know, you've already been through all the tough stuff, and you're just 
waiting it out, right? But, uh, but this couple, they were so in love with each other, and they were so excited to commit their lives to one another. And I thought, man, they have no idea what's on the road ahead. But they're deciding now, no matter what happens, we're in this together. And for those of you who are married, I've heard stories from friends that you just never know what you're getting yourself into until you're already into it. But making a commitment is something that you do preparing for the road ahead, no matter what. This isn't a, this isn't a flippant decision that we make. And uh, in fact, in the book of Luke, Luke kind of tells the same story, but he adds a couple more details. So in Luke chapter 14, verse 28, Jesus says, suppose that one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. This person began to build and wasn't able to finish. One of the things I love about pastoring here uh, versus pastoring in the U.S. is that a lot of times I find that Europeans take a long time to decide whether or not to follow Jesus. You know, I have American friends, and they're like, oh, this morning in church, you know, they're like in Texas or something, this morning in church, 100 people got saved. And I'm like, uh, congratulations, like, you know, our people take a long time. But I, I appreciate that because I think from the people I've encountered, there's an awareness that this is a big decision. This is a big decision. And like Jesus says in the book of Luke, you have to decide you have to decide if this decision is right for you. You have to consider the cost, and you have to decide if this is the right choice for you. But the truth is that Jesus, when Jesus says, follow me, what he's doing is he's inviting us into a life of great adventure. Every, every person we come across in the book of Mark who says yes to following Jesus lives into an incredible adventure. But all of this, this whole passage from Jesus shows us that it's not Jesus's intention that we will uh, be passive observers of his story. Jesus's intention is that we will become participants in the kingdom. His desire for us is that we will grow and mature. Because if you're here and you're a Christian and everything in your life is the same as it was five years ago or 10 years ago, that's not God's desire for you. He wants you to grow. He wants you to grow in your faith. But sometimes growth feels really hard. I was at a friend's house a couple weeks ago, and they have a three-year-old. And uh, the three-year-old, you know, they're like in the bathtub, and he's, he starts crying all of a sudden. And I looked at his mom, and I was like, oh, my gosh. She was like, oh, he doesn't like having his hair washed. And I'm like, rough problem, kid, you know. And then a few minutes later, he was crying because he didn't want to go to the toilet. And then he was crying because he didn't want to eat his dinner. And then it was bedtime, and he was crying again. And I said to his mom, does he realize that he's going to have to do all of these things every day for the rest of his life? He's going to have to eat his dinner every day. He's going to have to go to bed every single day for the rest of, you know. I just wanted to take his little face in my hands and say, this is the rest of your life. All of these things you hate doing, you're going to have to do them every day until you're an old man, you know, and if you get old enough, someone else will do them for you. But ultimately, like, and it's just so funny because I walked away from it and I thought sometimes that's how we are in our, in our spiritual walk. You know, we wrestle so hard when God's trying to teach us something. And we're like, no, I don't want to do it. And God's like, this is normal. This is a normal next step. This isn't anything exceptional. This is just growth and becoming a, a, a self-functioning 
person who's growing in their faith. You know, and sometimes we victimize ourselves and we say like, oh man, God's out to get me and, and he won't leave me alone and I'm suffering and he's requiring too much of me. When the reality is that this is what it takes to grow. This is what it takes to become a mature Christian. And if you've ever had in your life a Christian who you admire, who seems like they're just like super on fire for Jesus and they just know how to pray and they always know the right thing to say, it's because they've been through some really difficult seasons in their lives and they've stuck with it. They haven't given up. They've allowed God to teach them new things at every season and they've become spiritually mature. I want to encourage you today to allow these words from Jesus to take you from where you are to a place of greater spiritual maturity. Jesus goes on in verse 35 and says, Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. This is a picture of the upside-down kingdom of God, which says that the only thing that I get to take with me is what I give away. At the end of my life, when I die, the only thing I get to take with me, the only thing of value, will be what I have given away. My time and my love and my investment into the kingdom. The truth is that the harder I work to manage my own life and heal myself and strive for power, the more I'm at risk for losing my soul. But when I give my life into the hands of Jesus and ask him to make something of my life, my life becomes more than I could have made it. Like I mentioned a a moment ago, Mark's audience was largely Christians living in Rome. They lived in a culture that worshipped things similar to what our culture worships, uh, a culture that worshipped power and money and sex and all of these things. And these people, their their lives were in danger because they were followers of Jesus. So Mark is writing these words to people who are literally at risk of losing their, of losing their lives. And this would have reminded them that their deaths were not in vain. For Mark to record the, the, record the words of Jesus that says, whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. You have to imagine that these Christians who were persecuted, there was an actual weight to what they were doing. And if you've never looked into the history of the church and the early church, these people were martyred in gruesome and humiliating ways. And it would have been really easy for them to justify denying Christ. When I was growing up in youth group, they always, for some reason, they always were like, are you ready to die for your faith? And like, I'm 16 and I'm in Indiana, you know? So like, yeah, I am ready. But, you know, and we were all like crying, like, Lord, I'm ready to give my life for you. Um, but there was always that thing in my head where I was like, well, maybe we could find a workaround. You know, like if someone's there and they're like, deny Christ or else I'll kill you. I'd be like, I don't deny Christ, you know, like find a way around it to try to get myself out of the situation. But, but you have to imagine these Christians who are actually facing death, you know, for a guy getting ready to go into the Colosseum to be like, man, is this really worth leaving my family without their dad? Is this, really, is this really worth leaving my family without their source of income? What could my life possibly count for? What, what could it possibly matter whether or not I say yes to Jesus? But Mark reminds us that, we, that we're required to be obedient, that God can work with brokenness, and that eternal life waits for us. I was reading this morning uh, in the Psalms, and the, the truth is about this kind of stuff, we can get really tired of sacrificing. We can get really tired of following Jesus. Because sometimes we can say to ourselves, you know, what's the point? 
I'm giving up all this stuff. I'm trying to be a person of integrity at work, and I'm trying to do everything right, and I, it, just, it just keeps slamming me. I just am not having any relief from it. And I read in Psalm 73 this morning, it says it's a Psalm of Asaph, and he wrote, this is what the wicked are like. They're always carefree. They increase in wealth. Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been plagued. I've been punished every morning. Listen, the Psalms are so honest. They're so gut-wrenching. It's important to read the Psalms because sometimes when we're angry at God or we feel let down by God, we feel like we can't express that. But the Psalms remind us that it's important for us to be honest with God. I mean, Asaph gets in front of the Lord and he says, you know what? I don't even know what the point is of this. The wicked, they seem like they're having a great time. They're going out. They're living the way they want to. And there's, there's no problem they're having. They get richer and richer. And I'm keep, I keep getting poorer. Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. God, it seems like a waste that I've been living my life for you. It seems like a waste that I've tried to keep my hands clean. I've tried to keep myself innocent. What a waste. What's the point? All day long I've been plagued. I've been punished every morning. But then in verses 23 through 25 in the same chapter, he says, yet I'm always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire but you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Even, even the same thing happened to this guy, where he was like, man, I'm giving all this stuff up, and what's the point? What's the point? These other guys actually seem happier than I am. But then he comes back to what he knows is the truth, and he reminds himself, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Jesus follows up with a couple of rhetorical questions. He said, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? And what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Listen, when we look at the Old Testament, we see all these stories of people worshiping idols, and it seems crazy to us, right? Why would someone worship a golden calf or a, you know, carving in a tree when they had the actual presence of God with them? What, these people are so stupid. We can't believe they did that. But the reality is that we still fight this in our lives. We make idols out of things in our lives. We prioritize things above God. Sometimes we look at what the world has to offer, things like money or power or sex, and we decide that Christianity is asking too much of us. God is asking too much of us, and we put our soul at risk for temporary gain. Listen, I want to tell you, man, I'm learning in this season of my life that the choices that we make have an impact in the future of our life. Um, I'm, I'm 35 now, which is very young. And, uh, and I'm learning that in this phase of my life, I'm starting to reap consequences, positive or negative, from choices I've made over the last 10 or 15 years. So if you're here in your, in your early 20s, listen to me because I'm right. Um, but uh, but I, I find that people my age, like I have some friends that are into fitness. I have a friend who runs marathons. And now she's my age and she has three little kids and she's still running marathons and she's like a super athlete now because she's been working on that for 15 years. Um, I didn't ever run a marathon. So we're not at the same place in life in that way. 
Um, if you, when you're in your early 20s, if you're responsible with your money and you invest it, by the time you're 35, you're seeing some benefits of that. If you squander your money and you decide day to day that your choices don't really have anything to do with your life, then by the time you're my age, you're feeling the weight of that. There are some things in my life that I've made good choices on. There's some things I haven't made good choices. But because of some of the good choices I've made, I'm at this point in my life, and I have a good life. I've made difficult decisions when it comes to, like, my dating life. I've made difficult decisions in other moral areas of my life. But I did my best to do what I believed was right. And now I'm 35, and I have a great life. There are friends I have that are my age, and their life is falling apart because they've made poor choices leading up to it. There were other things that they were after. And you start to see that people exchange little pieces of their soul for those things that, that are idols to them. They start to, just a piece at a time, they go, you know what, I'm going to exchange this little piece of my soul for this other thing I have that's more valuable to me in the moment than living the way that God wants me to live. That's a hard message to hear, but I want to tell you that it's true, and I also want to tell you that it's never too late. If you're here and you're my age or older and you've made poor choices and your life is falling apart, today can be the day that that changes for you. You can walk out of here in a new place and you can start to make choices now to lead that in 10 years from now, you're going to have an awesome life. But there has to come a point where we live by these, this question that Jesus asked, which is what good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Because at the end of it, at the end of my life, at the end of my life, it doesn't matter how much money I, I have or how many relationships I've had or how far I've gone up on the corporate ladder. None of that's going to matter when I die. The only thing that's going to matter is whether or not I have walked in obedience to God. And I believe, I truly believe, that if we do our best to walk in obedience to God, that he blesses our lives. Not always in financial ways. There are some preachers who will be like, if you obey God, he'll make you rich. And that's great for them, but that's not how it's worked in my life. God blesses me in other ways. And I've seen this with my grandparents. I've seen it with my parents. When you live in obedience to God, he'll take care of you. He'll take care of you. Jesus goes on in verse 38, and he says, If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. This isn't the only place in Scripture we see this line. There's a few other places where Jesus says, If you're embarrassed to be seen with me, if you're embarrassed to see, say that you know me, then I'm going to be ashamed of you in front of my Father. Those are really tough words. Those are tough words. And I find myself, as I read this passage, I find myself pretty convicted by some of these things, you know? Because these things that, these things that Jesus lays out for us, sometimes when we look at this stuff, we go, man, I'm not doing a very good job. You know, as I read through this passage, I don't know about you, but I don't always do well at denying myself. A lot of times I just give up and decide I'm not strong enough and keep going the way I'm going. A lot of times it's hard for me to take up my cross. I don't like suffering any more than any of you like suffering. And sometimes the burden feels too heavy. Jesus says his burden is light, but sometimes we make the burden heavy on ourselves. And sometimes I get tired of sacrificing and suffering. And sometimes, like Asaph, I feel like, you know, what's the point? Because everybody else, they're not sacrificing. Like, you've asked me to sacrifice, and, and they seem to be doing really well for themselves. And there's times that I'm not good 
uh, following Jesus. I can find myself chasing the wrong things. I can find myself believing the lie that the cheap imitation of things that the world offers is more valuable than the love that Jesus offers. The truth is that we said a few weeks ago, the enemy of your soul wants to destroy your life. Satan wants to destroy your life, every part of it. He wants to destroy your life. And sometimes in scripture, Satan is referred to as the accuser, the accuser. And a couple times in scripture, it has pictures of, of Satan accusing us of our own sins or letting God know how bad we are. And in Revelation chapter 12, I love this passage. We see this moment of our triumph over the enemy. It says, for the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night, has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Look, all of these things Jesus is asking of us, denying ourselves and taking up our cross and not being ashamed of him and all that stuff, it can seem like a lot, but what Jesus reminds us of here is that our triumph over the enemy doesn't come through our own efforts. It comes by the blood of the lamb, comes by the sacrifice that Christ made for us. They triumphed over the accuser by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. See, Peter, Peter denied Jesus, didn't he? Peter was one of Jesus' closest disciples, and on, when Jesus needed him most, Peter lied and said he never met Jesus. Peter did exactly what Jesus said not to do in verse 38, if anyone is ashamed of me. But Jesus forgave him. Jesus forgave him. And in fact, Jesus handed over the keys of the church to Peter and asked Peter to keep this Christianity thing going for him. It doesn't matter if you're here today and you're like, man, if this is the requirement to be a Christian, I'm doing a terrible job of being a Christian. I'm doing a terrible job at it. You know what? That's okay. Because we overcome by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. That means that That means that we accept Jesus, what Jesus did for us. That means we accept the grace of Jesus. We accept that we're dependent on the grace of Jesus and the sacrifice he made. And the word of our testimony means that like Asaph, when we come to the end of ourselves and we're so frustrated, we relent and say, my flesh and my heart may fail. My efforts may fail me. I may cease to be faithful before you, but you are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. See, Jesus has given us the power to do everything he asked us to do. Jesus has given us that power. He is the strength in our weakness, and he is the victory in our defeat. One of the commentaries that I read um, in preparing for this message, um, he outlined a phrase that the early Christian church would use as they were in the midst of persecution, as they were in the midst of just being defeated over and over. Their friends were dying for their faith. And he, he wrote this He wrote this phrase that was popular in the early church, which was, for Christ and for the gospel. For Christ and for the gospel. And you imagine these people at the point of decision where they have to decide, do I really believe this enough to give my life for it? For Christ and for the gospel. Do I really believe this enough to give up that thing that Jesus is asking me to give up? For Christ and for the gospel. It makes it all worth it because the truth is your life doesn't end when you take your last breath here on earth. There's eternal purpose for each one of your lives. And we have a unique moment here on earth where we get to affect and impact the lives of people around us for eternity. 
when we're obedient to God, God uses us. He uses us as partners with Christ to bring change to people around us. We get to work in partnership with Christ, for Christ and for the gospel. Would you stand with me this morning as we prepare to close today?